1: Slow Burn Media, an evergreen podcast, presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless.
0: All right, there we have it. He did identify the defendant in the courtroom. Matt, let me bring you back in as our analyst today and ask you, so what import is it that this person who was robbed at gunpoint now says that's the defendant who robbed me when we're in court on an unrelated murder trial? Well, they're trying to to the, the prosecution's trying to to get the gun that was stolen uh, from that witness uh, in that hotel room um, to be, be in the hands of the defendant because ultimately it was the same gun that was used in in the homicide and the assault uh, of the prices. So so this is you know sort of this is circumstantial evidence. They're, they're trying to connect pieces. You know, here's the guy that. that That committed the robbery, a gun was taken, that gun was used in the murder. I want to bring on my guest, Matt Mangino, uh, criminal defense attorney and former prosecutor. Matt, how are you today, sir? Great, thanks for having me. Uh, Always a pleasure to have you on. So listen, look, I have the best of both worlds with you, and I think we have an interesting dynamic here. I'm former law enforcement, you're former prosecutor, now defense attorney. How do you think the defense did in in that closing? Because he he brought up some very interesting points, right? He talked about the gun range. Well, his closing was very methodical. I mean, he went through each point that he thought he needed uh, to convince the uh, jury here that there was a reasonable doubt about Um, this charge of murder in the first degree.
1: Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Who Killed? I am absolutely thrilled to be joined this week by a very special guest. A former district attorney is joining and blessing Who Killed this week, and that is one Matt Mangino. And thank you so much for taking time out of your crazy schedule to uh, come on our show.
0: Well, thanks for having me, Bill. It's it's a pleasure.
1: Yeah, it was great. Uh, we have actually met at CrimeCon just a few weeks back and, uh, in Las Vegas, and we got talking, and uh, you have a very interesting and intriguing uh, background and have made quite the name for yourself in the world of true crime, and uh, what have you been up to? Because it seems like a lot.
0: Well, as you mentioned, uh, Bill, we we cross paths at uh, CrimeCon, and that was uh, exciting. I had an opportunity to present there on the death penalty, and we talked a bit about that. and And my presentation was kind of a spinoff of of a book that I've written on the death penalty, uh, "The Executioner's Toll," two thousand and ten. Uh, but I've also, you know, I've had an opportunity. Um, to do some additional writing uh, recently uh, for the crime report and the uh, uh, the legal Intelligencer in, in Philadelphia, uh, as well as the Pennsylvania Capital Star. So, uh, you know, I've had an opportunity over the years to, to uh, write a syndicated column that was distributed by Gatehouse. So I've I've really focused a lot of my work on writing and and i've also had an opportunity uh you know through you know law and crime network and and uh court tv and and other uh, media outlets to talk about some of the leading cases of the day so besides doing all that i still practice uh criminal defense and so it's it's really uh it's a fun and exciting time for me
1: as they say you have a full docket
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure <laughs>
1: Well, what is the, uh, let's talk about that. You mentioned the, uh, you know, the case of the day or what, what's sort of going on. What, what is the latest thing that you've been, uh, covering?
0: Well, actually, uh, you know, the, the, uh, that defamation trial, although it's not a criminal matter, it's not a true crime uh, matter. Uh, you know, it has these layers of, of different, uh, intriguing aspects, you know, uh, you know, alleged domestic violence and that whole uh, scenario and how how it's, uh, you know, been involved in this really kind of toxic relationship between uh, Johnny Depp and uh, Amber Heard. Uh, You know, it's made for great television. Um, You know, I'm not really sure what the end game for either one of them is in that case. Uh, I I don't necessarily think it's doing much for either of their uh, reputations. Uh, but uh, it 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 really is um, enthralling and and it really grabs people and and they're and they're paying close attention to it.
1: You know, it's that's an interesting um, case for sure because of the fact that it is being televised. You don't really see a lot of uh, the inner workings of a domestic violence case and let alone you know on court tv because it's unfortunately it's not something that gets all of that attention but when it's two big stars like you know depp and heard like you're talking about yeah it it does garner a certain amount of attention it does i think it actually in in the long run their end game i don't know what it is either because i don't think it's helping either their careers but i would say The positive thing out of it is that it is bringing back the spotlight to domestic violence and how that is still extremely prevalent in society, whether it's, and it's becoming more, you know, and it's not to say I'm placing blame on either person because nothing's been rendered, but, you know, to be a victim if you're a male is a much harder thing to come forward with. It's also extremely difficult if you're female. So, I mean, it's, it's really you're walking a tightrope, and I think that's why everybody seems so intrigued by this case because they're kind of opening up the curtain to really what you don't, you know, the, you don't really see inside celebrities' lives, and this is really one of those cases where you do.
0: Right, and, and, and uh, you know, I think what's happening to a certain extent, uh, what people are seeing, they don't necessarily uh, like. Uh, You know, because number one, it's hard to be sympathetic with the figure, either one who, you know, flies around on private jets uh, to private islands, uh, brings their their own uh, doctor uh, or psychiatrist or or drug and alcohol treatment person to their private island you know to go through this whole process so so well you know we watch these people on tv and we watch them on movie th- in movie theaters i think what we're starting to realize is we're not like them i mean they don't live the same sort of lives that we do uh, and 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 i think that really is going to have an impact on the empathy that jurors can feel for either one of these parts because they're realizing, I can't relate to this. I can't relate to going on an alcohol binge for five days or, or a drug binge for five days and getting on my plane so sick that I, uh, I'm i not even conscious to get back to, to New York City for rehab. That I don't think jurors can, can, can really wrap their head around that.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point. And I, I do think you're right. They They've lost the empathy card as far as – um, uh, you know cuz yeah you're right they don't live like us they're we're, we're we're very much uh under the belief and you know maybe it's naive but whatever but it is one of those things you look at and uh yeah i mean he's flying to private islands he owns owns <laughs> <laughs> uh right. he's spending $27,000 a month on wine <laughs> like yeah. th- this these are things that you know uh, they're they're not crimes there may be crimes against your body but uh, you know again the domestic violence thing I think that is the one positive spin out of it is that at the end of the day it's, it is about domestic violence and they're probably not going to walk away with you know it's probably going to be whatever a wash and then uh, mm-hmm. but again the spotlight was shined or was showing again how much this can be you know not even just in anybody's regular life but in celebrities lives and even when you have all the money in the world and you think oh god this is great i have my own private island well drug and alcohol issues clearly (laughs) there's no solution for that especially if you do have a endless bank account
0: right yeah i mean you know people people suffer from that disease whether they're uh multi-millionaires or, or they're, uh, you know, broken and have, and have, you know, spent their last dime. Uh, the disease, uh, you know, affect, affects everybody in a similar way. And it's, and it's certainly uh, not a positive way by any means.
1: Yeah, I definitely would agree with you on that one. So what else has been going on? I mean, I saw that you were on, uh, and you always seem to be on Nancy Grace, but uh, yeah. I did see that you were talking about uh, the OkCupid okay stuff. I was just on mm-hmm. your website. Yeah, what's going on there?
0: Well, yeah, uh, you know it's it's really a lot of fun uh, to to get a chance to uh, argue a little bit with Nancy Grace uh, on her uh, program, you know, you, crime stories with Nancy Grace. Don't say and yeah, so uh, that's uh, you know that's something that that, that makes this uh, fun every once in a while when you do it. But but you do really talk about some interesting uh, cases and. And the one case that you mentioned is the um, you know Sacramento woman who uh, had told her family that she was going to meet uh, a guy that she met on OK Cupid, which is a an online uh, dating service, and um, she disappeared, uh, and and right now there's no trace of her, and so you know it highlights a, a problem that, that's out there to some certain extent, and that is that that uh, predators and and rapists uh, will use these types of online services to meet people uh, you know to, to meet victims and and I think you know well these online dating services really you know can uh, fulfill somebody's dreams and and there are countless stories that people have met and and married and they're living happily ever after but I think you have to be, uh, as someone who uses these services, uh, conscious of the fact that not everybody out there is is looking for a long-term relationship, and some people are predators, uh, and so you should always be sure to to let people know where you're going, meet in public places, and uh, you know, do those sort of things that protect yourself. Uh, and certainly you know, hopefully, if if your goal is to is to have a long-term relationship, you find one, but you protect yourself in the process, and I think that's. Some of the things that, that Nancy Grace likes to get across uh, to her listeners and to her viewers is that you you need to protect yourself.
1: A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think you notice that when you are at an event like CrimeCon where it's an 85% uh, women that are in attendance. And a lot of that, and I this is my belief, in the years of, of working in true crime and in journalism is that there's a desire to know what to look out for. And I think people like Nancy Grace, people like Jim Clemente, people like yourself, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they bring out and they kind of highlight the things to keep aware of. And I think that's another reason why true crime podcasts are super popular is that it gives an advantage to the listener Even if it's a false advantage, you know, maybe, you know, what they know that may not help them in that particular situation, but maybe it helps them and they don't even realize it because they didn't go and talk to that one person or they just got a little sketchy feeling and they decided, yeah, probably not a good idea to go out with that guy and so i think that's really great that you know you go on and you talk about that stuff because these these technologies these apps i mean they're they're so prevalent and you really you got to be careful
0: right no and 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 i agree and, and, and you know you know even a podcast like yours you know it builds awareness so so like you said people might not even realize that they're that they're learning something that might protect them someday but they but they hear about these scenarios and all of a sudden when they find themselves in a situation whoa this doesn't feel exactly right they might not even know where they got that little bit of information and it might have been listening you know to your podcast but but those are the kind of things you know at at least people who are aware of true crime they have a certain level of consciousness that hey not everything is as it seems. And that skepticism, I think, is helpful, and and it protects people uh, as well.
1: I would agree 100%. I think that that is actually extremely noticeable. I think uh, there are a, a lot more aware people out there than there were 10, 15 years ago about what to look out for. I think that's great because as much as we want to say that crime has been on the decline, it actually has been increasing in the past couple of years. So, right. while we got to say that for about twenty years, yeah, crimes on the uh, you know on the decline. Well, for the past you know couple of few years, it's been on the rise, and violent crime that is too. So it's, uh, it's a slippery slope that we're in right now. And you know, you want to be everybody to be happy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's their right to go out and meet new people and go on these apps, but they also have to be smart and just they have a backup plan too, you know. If you feel again, if you have that weird feeling, don't do it. <laughs> it's just that's just the hard. bottom line. That's the bottom line. Mm-hmm. In in uh, here's a question for you, like just to throw one at you. What was the mm-hmm. most um was there a case that you had that you thought you had the suspect but you were never able to bring charges? Cuz that was what that's always one of those things that intrigues a lot of listeners like Mm -hmm. like do you know who it is and you don't have to get like into detail but
0: well yeah i mean there there's always uh you know scenarios like that i mean you know one case uh that when i first uh, was elected district attorney in lawrence county um there had been really a horrible uh murder of three children and an adult. Um, they, they, they were slashed with a knife. Their throats were slashed. Uh, the crime scene was just a huge puddle of, of blood. Uh, and there was no charges uh, filed for a period of time uh, before I was district attorney. And then um, the attorney general had been assigned the case before um, or right as I came in into office. and. Ultimately, a guy was arrested, uh, convicted of those uh, cases, sentenced to death. His case went up um, to the actually the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, and he was granted a new trial. And at that second trial, he was found not guilty. Uh, so this crime now remains unsolved. And the, the question is, do you believe that the, that the guy who was arrested and convicted and sentenced to death who got a second trial and then was found not guilty, is that, still, is that still the guy who committed the crime? Because, you know, finding somebody not guilty doesn't mean that you're saying they're innocent. You're meaning, it means that the, that, the, that the state has not met its burden of proof. They haven't been able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this person was guilty at the second trial. Or, on the other hand, is that murderer still out there? this person that committed this very gruesome murder of children and and an adult. Um, You know, so that's that kind of case, you know, still and I haven't been in in the district attorney's office uh, for close to 14 years now, but I still think about that case and I still think about those victims and I still think about, you know, was was it the right guy the first time or is this is this killer still still running the streets?
1: That's very intriguing. That, that I mean, that case, <clears throat> except for the adult, it reminds me of what was just solved last week, or I believe it was last week, was the Girl Scout murders of 77. I'm sure mm-hmm. you saw that. And that guy, he, right. there's another... But that's The reason why I bring it up is not just because of the fact that it was three kids, but the guy went on trial and he, he was found not guilty. But then mm-hmm. again, now they come out with the new technology, new DNA abilities, and that's the guy. And it's just like, you know, luckily he was already in prison for other crimes and he died in prison shortly thereafter. But to think that he could have been just walking the streets after he just got away with murder. It's kind of scary.
0: Yeah. Well, Well, yeah, it certainly is. Uh, frightening, and we know, um, you know, our our criminal justice system is based on a system where you have to prove somebody guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, and you know that's a, that's a, a a difficult burden to meet. But it also built into that is the idea that you know we can't prove people guilty to some mathematical certainty, and we don't expect the system to find people guilty to a mathematical certainty. So. Built into our system is the idea that an innocent person could be convicted, and that guilty people can go free. Uh, that that's really inherent in the whole idea of proof beyond a reasonable doubt.
1: That kind of, and that's kind of a good lead into your book. I mean, to a degree, I mean that is give the listeners a little idea of what your book's about because that's really it's a really intriguing. Uh, way of going about writing a book?
0: Yeah, so uh, when I start thinking about the death penalty, and I've prosecuted death penalty cases and have defended them uh, as well, um, you know, everybody who writes about the death penalty usually writes from a certain bias. They're for the death penalty, they're against it. So they cherry pick all the cases that support their position and say, look how good or look how bad the death penalty is. What I wanted to do was take a, an unbiased look at the death penalty. And I thought one way to do that would be to look at all the executions in a single year. Um, so I'm not cherry picking the good or the bad uh, cases that support or or don't support the death penalty. We're gonna look at all these cases. We're gonna look at the crimes. We're gonna look at the investigations. We're gonna look at the trials, the appeals, all the way up to the, the last words and the last mills. And you know, mix in the constitutional law that's evolved over the last uh, you know 35 years, and uh, you know, let the reader decide for themselves: Do they support or not support the death penalty? It could have been any year. I just I just picked 2010, and it happened to be an interesting year because you had an execution by firing squad, you had uh, an, elect- a, 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 an execution by the electric chair. You had a woman executed, which is really, um, uh, you know, unusual. So so the, so I, I thought that that would be a good year to examine the death penalty.
1: That's really intriguing. And I think the listeners would probably, it, it would be a great book for them to read. Because I think anytime you have that question or you leave that question up for the audience or the listeners or, you know, the readers, I think it, it, it almost empowers them to look at the case with a different perspective because then it's sort of making them responsible for making the decision, even though they're not per se, it's just they mm-hmm. get the opportunity to put their own two cents in and That's, that's something that people really like to do.
0: Right. And, and, and so, you know, it's interesting uh, in, in the fact that you, you can examine these cases uh, one-on-one because each chapter represents one of the 46 persons who was executed or you can look at them together. You know, what, one case that I wrote about was the 46th execution uh, of 2010. So really the last chapter in my book. And the guy's name was John David Duty. okay? And um, he was serving three life sentences in an Oklahoma prison, all right? And he decided that, you know, he was 49 years old. He had been there for 23 years. And he decided he didn't want to be in prison any longer. Uh, but he didn't have the courage to either try to escape or to kill himself. What he decided he was going to do was kill his way out of prison. So he had he was in, in the RHU, which, as you know, is kind of the the jail within the jail, restricted housing. And he had he had a young cellmate named Curtis Wise, and he, he told Curtis Wise, he said, listen, let me tie you up and then you can scream for a guard and they'll come in and what they'll do is they'll give you your own cell and they'll give me my own cell we'll we'll have our own cell so he ties up curtis wise He, he agrees to it and before curtis wise could call for a guard john david duty strangles him to death then he sits down and starts writing a letter to wise's mother saying you know, it was harder than I thought. It's not like you see on TV when they kill someone. And it's probably a good thing because your son was just going to spend a life of crime and incarceration. Fortunately, they intercepted that letter before it had ever left prison. But he also sent a letter to the DA and said, listen, sentence me to death and execute me or I'm going to keep killing people here in prison. And so ultimately, he got his wish and he was executed. Uh, for that murder. But but, you know, so that that chapter, that that person makes you say, wait a second, uh, that this should be the poster child for an execution for the death penalty. This is a guy that says, kill me or I'm going to keep killing. Um, you know, so, so you know, people have to decide, is, is that appropriate? It, 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 was execution appropriate for John David Duty?
1: Right, because you, you basically granted a murderer his wish, and that's right. Uh, seems kind of dirty in a way.
0: Th- yeah, but but I, and I guess the 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 you know the other side of that is you know who how do you how do you house John David Dude? if he says I'm going to keep killing until you you kill me. How long does that do you let that go on? It almost seems um, like
1: West, you know, you know, old Western justice. You know, like throw, you know, let's hang him in town square because he says he wants to die. So let's yeah. make an example of him. I mean, I guess I, I, yeah, I could see some moral quandaries there. I mean, there's definitely some def, definitely some questions that I would have as far as the ethics behind that. You meant.
0: Well, let's if you look at Pennsylvania, for instance, you know, my home state, you know, we had there's one hundred and thirty people on death row in Pennsylvania since 1976. You know, the modern era of the death penalty after the Supreme Court brought it back. um, There have been three executions. Okay, all three of them were volunteers, which means they gave up their 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 pill rights and said, execute me. Uh, There hasn't been a person executed involuntarily in Pennsylvania since 1962, yet they've had the death penalty on the books here since the beginning of the state, you know, since the state was organized. So, uh, you know, it makes you wonder, is that an effective punishment if you're only executing people who say, execute me? it's
1: yeah, it certainly does give you that. It gives the criminal sort of an idea of what they have in store for them. Like, Oh yeah, they have it's just kind of like California. You can go on death row, but you know, you're not going to get executed. Right. Uh, and,
0: yeah. They have 700 people on death row and they've carried out 13 executions, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know.
1: it, it, yeah. It's, I mean, let's, and they have some of the worst of the worst and they don't, I, I don't know. I mean, it does make you wonder. I mean, how about the the woman that was uh, executed that year? What was uh, what was her crime?
0: Well, what, what she did was um, she uh, became friendly with some a couple of young guys uh, who she ultimately began an intimate relationship with both of them. That uh, they were very they were maybe late teens, um, and then she ultimately. Um, coaxed them into uh, killing her husband. And, uh, you know, ultimately uh, they did that. Uh, They killed her husband. They testified against her. You know, the big, uh, she was in the state of Virginia. The issue was, um, you know, she had become a model prisoner. In fact, she had become kind of like a um, confidant uh, leader, mentor to young female prisoners uh, who who were also in custody. And so there was there was a lot of uh, review, a lot of thought that went into whether or not she should be entitled to, um, you know, a reprieve, you know, uh, you know, clemency to change your sentence to life in prison. But ultimately, the governor wouldn't approve that. And she was executed.
1: Yeah. You look at some of those cases that end up like that and you see people that turn their lives around or, you know, I don't know, go down a diff- different path in jail. You see people go down the same path in jail. So you do sort of have to weigh those options or those, I think weigh those uh, extenuating circumstances when it comes to this type of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you would know way better than any of us. I mean, did you personally, I mean, have to make any Death sentences or put anybody on death row? Well, uh,
0: yeah. I, as as a prosecutor, um, I tried two capital cases. Both of those cases ended up as life without parole and not a not a death sentence. So, uh, no, I was never responsible for putting anybody um, on death row. Did you ever
1: feel like? I mean, did you feel like those cases that you did?
0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life.
1: No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. People don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about the doom scrolling, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, Undereating or overeating. I like to think that I deal with my stresses by taking a little bit of mindfulness each day. I do try to make it a point to focus on myself because stress shows up in all kinds of ways. And in a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time, here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. I've personally been in therapy since I was a child, and I would suggest it for everyone. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's so much more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and who killed Amy Maholovic Listeners get ten percent off their first month at BetterHelp.com/who. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com/who.
0: Well, yeah, I did, and and if I didn't think they warranted it, um, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't have sought that. And 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 you know, the the problem with. The death penalty, um, and they they tried to correct this problem to a certain extent in 1972 in in a case, uh, Furman versus Georgia, was that there really wasn't any guidelines for the death penalty. Uh, You know, so there really, there really wasn't anything that separated, you know, one first degree murder case from another. So, so you were getting similar cases being treated differently in different states, but you're also getting similar cases being Treated similar, uh, you know, not the same in, in neighboring counties. Uh, you know, so, so it, it was really kind of a toss up. And it's always been exclusively a discretionary decision by the district ter- district attorneys. So um, the Supreme Court tried to create some guidelines. So what they said in, in 1976 was, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make the death penalty only for the worst of the worst, and the way we're going to do that is we're going to have what we call aggravating circumstances. So it's not enough just to be convicted of first degree murder; you have to do something more egregious, like uh, kill a child, or kill a police officer, or kill a pregnant woman, or kill somebody in, in in the act of torture, or having killed yeah having killed somebody in the past. So so these aggravating circumstances, we're going to make it not just for anybody who committed first-degree murder, but the worst of the worst. It really didn't work out that way. And one of the reasons is, is because as states began amending their, their death penalty laws, uh, and over time, the way it evolved is they put kind of catch-alls in there that said, well, any crime that's particularly heinous. Well, I mean, murder's heinous. I mean, you know what I mean? So, so basically, you're back to square one. You can charge anybody you can seek the death penalty against anybody who committed first degree murder because murder is heinous. Uh, you know, so, so, you know, you're always going to going to have that sort of thing. And, and so, you know, what in 72, what the court said was the death penalty was arbitrary in the way that it was being imposed. Okay. Because there were no guidelines, there were no aggravating circumstances. So now we've evolved into a situation is where the question is, has the death penalty evolved, it become arbitrary in the way that it's being carried out? And what I mean by that is, last year there were 11 executions in the United States. There's 2,474 people on death row in this country. Um, you know, if at that rate, a significant number of those people are going to die of natural causes rather than lethal injection or some other means. You know, so, so, Back in 72, Justice Potter Stewart said that getting the death penalty was freakishly arbitrary, like getting struck by lightning. Okay? The question now is, is being executed, being one of those 11, 11 out of 2,474, freakishly arbitrary, like being struck by lightning. What? How do you differentiate those 11 from the other and you know, 63. So, so, so that's where I think the death penalty is right now in terms of, of how it's being viewed.
1: It's super interesting. That's a super interesting perspective because you, you read about when somebody's going up for execution and you don't really, you know, they don't go into the nitty gritty. You know, I worked in TV. They don't talk about all these other cases that are still out there and it's, you're right. Like, how do they select? Okay. It's, uh, this individual's time to meet their maker and it's that the fact that there isn't a like a actual method a, you know right. method of the madness I guess uh, it's kind of crazy to think that somebody's life can literally be in the hands of just such a few people a few amount of people and it It makes you wonder about the whole thing in general, like freakishly arbitrary is is it there's the whole mm-hmm. thing does it really do what it's supposed to do? I mean, if we're only putting eleven people to death, is that i mean is that even a deterrent is that right I
0: mean well that's a good question and and, and that's a question that a lot of people ask um, you know is is the idea that you could be executed? uh for kidding committing a murder uh give pause to someone who's got a gun and is about to kill somebody i i don't think that it is um you know i i think the alternative w- would be if you were executing more people and in a quicker period of time then it might be uh an issue that someone would contemplate hey i could get executed for this i you know just like people make that sort of cost-benefit analysis and other crimes that they commit, you know, people say, "Hey, I," you know, I, I'll give you an example, and I and I and I think it's a, an interesting example. So, so I spent six years on the parole board after I left the DA's office in, in Pennsylvania. So, governor, the governor at the time, Governor Rendell, appointed me to the parole board, and, and um, I did six years there. And part of our responsibilities, there were nine board members across the state was you would interview people who were eligible for parole, uh, people who committed, you know, violent felonies. And, and you know, I would interview people who on occasion, you know, they would, they would get arrested for an armed robbery. But the gun wasn't loaded, okay? It doesn't matter, you know, if the gun's loaded or not. If someone perceives that threat, they have the gun. And I would say, well, why, why did you go there with an unloaded gun? and the guy'd be like I do not want to kill anybody. You know, I, I I want I wanted to commit a robbery. And and the guy on on the other side of the counter didn't know if my gun was loaded or not. So he was going to give me what I wanted. But I didn't want to make things worse and shoot him. You know, so so when you think about that it didn't deter him from committing that specific crime, but it deterred them from killing somebody, you know, because they made a a decision I didn't want this Point where I'm shooting it out with somebody, I'm murdering somebody, but I do want to scare them and I want their money. So, so people rationalize even criminals about, you know, what what could happen to them, uh, you know, it, if they did such and such a thing. But the idea that one out of or eleven out of two thousand seven hundred or four hundred and seventy four people is going to get executed, I don't think gives anybody pause that that. that You know, I don't want
1: to face the death penalty. Yeah, that's a very good point, though, that you brought up there about not loading the gun because they don't want to commit that crime. I also think that that's the type of person that that individual is, because I think there are people who are criminals, but they don't want to have that over their head. You know, even if the death penalty is something that they get, they don't want to kill somebody. You know, they don't want to robbing them is one thing but to them killing them is a whole nother ball of wax, which it is. And, right. uh, and it just goes to show you that, yeah, criminals do think about that stuff before they go in, because if the gun's not loaded, mm-hmm. then they have no option.
0: Right. Right. And, 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 it's kind of like, uh, you know, a criminal's morality. I mean, yeah, there, there is some morality in these people, even though they're, they're criminals. There are certain things they're not going to do. They're, they're not going to try to kill somebody. They're not going to rape somebody. You know, they have sign kind of their own sort of set of deadly sins that I won't do, but everything else is on the table.
1: So here's a question for you in regards to when you were the district attorney, did you prosecute, um, like did you prosecute any cases where you were kind of the center of attention as far as like the local media, like, Oh, this is the hottest case in, you know, the area. And, you know, we got to talk to you know Matthew Mangino and get his thoughts. Mm-hmm. I mean, we. I mean, clearly you were interviewed a lot, but was there any case that stood out to you?
0: Um. Yeah. There, there, there were a couple of cases, and and you know, where are um the county that I I uh, was the DA in um was north of Pittsburgh, so we got all the media attention in Pittsburgh. And then it was um, just uh, east of Youngstown, Ohio, and south of Cleveland. So you got a, there was a lot of media attention, especially as you know the, the news you know they like to they like these kind of cases because uh, people like to hear about. Them. Uh, but there was and there was one particular case in which a um, it was a thrill killing, um, uh, three young guys, um, you know late teens early 20s had you know made this uh you know plot to they wanted to kill they wanted to rape and kill um you know a young girl and they talked about it, you know sat around smoked marijuana and talked about it drank beer and then finally one day they they snatched a 12 year old girl off the street uh in ohio right across the line broader into pennsylvania and murdered her. And, murder. um, and uh, so this thrill killing was, uh, yeah, as you can imagine, uh, was, was a big was a big case. Uh, got a lot of media attention. Uh, one of the guys uh, pled guilty, or I think actually two of them pled guilty to first degree murder. One who, who thought he had a lesser role in it went to trial and uh, he was convicted and sentenced uh, to life in prison without the possibility of parole.
1: That's a disgusting case. And what was the name of that? Do you remember the name of the girl?
0: Uh, her first name was Shannon. I, I don't remember. Koss, I believe it was Shannon Koss. K-O-S.
1: K-O-S. That is. Yeah. So, I, mm-hmm. yeah. Cases like that. I mean, when it affects a child that those have definitely have to stick with you mm-hmm. the longest.
0: Oh yeah, those 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 kind of cases uh certainly have an impact on you. Uh you know, I, you know, we we had a, a situation where uh there was a a young couple unmarried who had twins and um one of the twins died. Uh they were infants. And um so we weren't sure what happened. Um you know, so obviously there's an autopsy. We think that there might be, you know, some foul play here, and and um, at the autopsy, uh, they shave the child's head, and one when, when they shave the 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 child's head, there you can see a handprint, basically, on the on the child's scalp. It was hit that hard in the head with an open hand uh, that it that it killed the child. It killed the infant and and so yeah so those are those kind of cases you know and, and really you you think as a prosecutor you you've seen a lot but when i went on to the parole board in pennsylvania and saw literally thousands of violent offenders you know uh you know from philadelphia and, and all the other larger cities in the state uh I realized I only scratched the surface in the county where I was uh, district attorney, because there's some really terrible things that people do to one one another. And and one case that still haunts me to this day was a child who had been severely beaten uh, repeatedly uh, by his mother. And essentially, uh, you know, he had ruptured vital organs and he was bleeding internally he was dying and he was sitting on the steps you know this of his of his the second floor and still calling for his mother because he was in such pain and his mother was the person who inflicted all these injuries that killed him Uh, and that 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 case has never left my mind
1: that has got to be absolutely crazy i can't even fathom what the research all the investigating that you have to do when it comes to those kind of cases how that doesn't just keep you up at night
0: well yeah i mean as i said you know you you have to you have to separate yourself from the work that you do whether it's as a prosecutor or, or whether it's as a parole board member, or whether it's a criminal defense attorney, and and you have to do the same thing in, in other professions as well. I mean, you know, you look at a lot of horrible cases on a regular basis, uh, you know, and if you if you went home every night and stared at the ceiling and thought about those cases, you might have quit doing this a while ago. But but you can't do that uh, because you know you're doing a service to the public and educating them, and you know prosecutors, parole board members, criminal defense attorneys have a responsibility as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it does. Yeah. I mean, you have a responsibility to, you know, your constituents and the people that, you know, expect you to do your job. I mean, that is definitely the job of a district attorney is to, you know, bring the hard cases, you know, to trial and to close them out and try to bring some closure to, to families. Do you feel like as you know, during your time as a, as a district attorney, did you come across any cases where, you know, the family was, you know, not involved, but like you had gotten close with the family and it became more of like a passion thing. Like we need to get this solved because this family is, I mean, I know every case is important, but mm-hmm. there are some cases that stand out.
0: Well, yeah, I, you know, in terms of, of investigation, um, uh, Typically, as a prosecutor, you know, our office was there to aid the law enforcement during the course of their investigation. You know, we didn't really have a, an extensive detective bureau that actually got involved in, in um, the invest investigations themselves. Uh, typically, in, in in the in the county where I was district attorney it was the state police who handled most of the major crimes um, there were some exceptions uh, there's a, a city uh, Newcastle in in the county that that um, I was the district attorney that, that had their own police force that that, that that did those things but a lot of major crimes were, were handled by the state police they would always bring in major crime unit guys from neighboring counties so you really had a great investigative um, arm of the state police who who did all the homicides and rapes and things like that we were typically counseled to that yeah all right yeah yeah so so, you know major crimes were typically investigated by the uh, the pennsylvania state police they would bring in uh, troopers from neighboring counties who were investigators, so they did an excellent job and basically we we served more as as counsel to them as they conducted these investigations. We really weren't you know on the ground involved in the investigations now, every major crime i would tip I would go out to the crime scene, so I knew what the crime scene looked like, and other uh, assistant district attorneys in my office would um, so so most of our contact with families. Uh, would be after an investigation was complete and an arrest was made, and then we'd be more involved with with the victim's families or the victim uh, him or herself. And we always ha- gave great deference to the family and to um, um, the victims and what their uh, concerns were were and what uh, you know what they were uh, what was most important to them. I mean, they they really couldn't, you know, uh, trump our decisions on things, but we certainly wanted to know how they felt and why they felt the way that they did.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. That definitely, definitely makes sense. And I would feel, I mean, I would imagine that you feel uh, a sense of relief when you do bring a case and obviously you get a conviction. and. There has to be some sort of, you know, not like uh, you're, but I mean, how do, how do I put this? It's because there's never going to be closure for a lot of those families that lost loved ones. But if you can provide justice, that has to be something that is satisfying.
0: Well, right. I mean, that that's what we thought our uh, responsibility was, was to be just um, and, and to present a, a case that we thought, uh, we could prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and, you know, certainly you're never going to bring a loved one back like you mentioned, but, but you know, at least uh, families of victims and even victims themselves uh, when it wasn't a homicide at least uh, could feel uh, that, the, that the system served their uh, interests, that justice was done and that somebody was held responsible uh, for the terrible crime
1: now one of the things just to kind of change things up here we talked about when we were at crime con together as i talked about youngstown you were you mentioned you were close to youngstown and i had mentioned you know back in the day that you know there used to be a, a decent mafia uh connection down there and i don't know if it still exists you know whatever and uh yeah. I guess I asked you if you had any uh, cases that involved any of the mafia around that area. Did that ever come across your plate?
0: Well, you know, not directly. I mean, you know, what we were involved in at various times um, were gambling um, investigations and gambling prosecutions, and you know, you you could make that connection to. To youngstown or pittsburgh or cleveland um you know because there, there there's there's some court, sort of a gamblers illegal gambling hierarchy uh you know that, that stretches uh from your neighborhood all the way back to some some major city now there, there's been a huge impact on that uh you know because of you know gambling has been legalized so so in pennsylvania you know we we have casinos Uh, all over the place. Um, you know, you can, you can go to those casinos and you can bet on, on, uh, athletic, uh, competitions. And, you know, now you can go on FanDuel on your cell phone in in Pennsylvania and, and, and bet, uh, you know, bet on the Kentucky Derby. I mean, if you were smart in Pennsylvania and you're getting ready to watch the Derby and you pull your phone out on FanDuel and put a hundred bucks on, uh, what was what was it? The eighty to one favorite, he have done all right. Uh, yeah, and here's an interesting story, though. You know, so in Pens- in Ohio, for instance, you can't bet online like that, right? So people from Ohio come right across the line to where we are, and they basically drive around in circles or sit in parking lots and bet on Fanduel. Uh, you know, it's incredible. Are you so, serious? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, so, so uh you know but so 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 that was kind of the main thing that I was involved in but but Youngstown traditionally you know they they you know they they had uh you know mob influences um that were basically were driven out of Pittsburgh not not necessarily Cleveland and um you know but there was a series of indictments uh for corruption uh over over a span. You you may remember Jim Trafficking. <laughs> Absolutely. Who, who, yeah. So so the he hair. was he was yeah. So he was the sheriff of Mahoney County, which is Youngstown, and he got indicted for corruption, and represented himself, and was found not guilty in federal court. And that's what launched his congressional career. So then he then then he went. Uh, you know his congressional congressional career, which was crazy you know with his stay you know beam me up Scotty and all those other kind of things that he used to say and do he lived on a, a boat uh, you know uh, um, on on a river in Washington DC and he, he got indicted again uh, second time around and, and, and this time he got convicted and went to prison uh, but but because of these FBI and US attorney uh, investigations you know they prosecuted county commissioners the district attorney in fact when I first got elected district attorney the the district attorney in Ohio in mahoney county um, who ultimately got indicted and went to prison uh, he lost an election surprisingly by kind of a uh, you know a, an up and comer a former police officer well the mob went in and shot that new d a He was sworn into office. They tried to uh, essentially assassinate him because he wasn't mob connected. He's still the DA over there. Paul Gaines is his name. But but yeah, they went into his home and and they shot him. Um, So, yeah, it's it's, uh, you know, Youngstown has a long history, you know, blowing cars up and all the kind of stuff you see in the movies.
1: None of that actually uh, came came into your territory, which is good. That's that's good. I mean, don't get me wrong. Some of your cases are terrible. The thrill killing is is one that will stand out to me. And uh, were there any? Were there any other cases that stood out to you as far as ones that you you think that the the listeners should know about that? Maybe you're actually unsolved even.
0: Well, you know, of course, um, there's always going to be unsolved uh, homicides. Um, you know, bodies that are found and never recovered. I mean, uh, never uh, 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 arrest made or, or prosecuted. Um, you know, so, and, and I'm just trying to think of a case that, that would stand out. I mean, another homicide case, which was unusual, was a, um, you know, a 65-year-old guy uh, who shot a young guy, about 24 years old, shot him a couple of times. They were in a party. They were in a house. They were all doing drugs and things like that. But this is an elderly guy who had no violence in his history, which is unusual. And he comes out, shoots him. And the and the young guy tries to crawl away. And he just walks over and basically executes him. And, you know, most of the time, as you know, I mean, people age out of violent crime. You know, so so you might be, uh, you know, a real... Uh, you know, badass when, when, when you're in your teens and 20s, but as you get older, even into your thirties, you're less likely to be committing violent crimes. And, you know, certainly when someone rolls into the age of 65 and they have no real history of violence to, to shoot somebody and then shoot them uh, execution style is really unusual. Um, and, And so that was a case that stood out as well.
1: You never know what people are up to. And that is one of the things that had to been really interesting as a DA, because again, like we talked about, like you get to see kind of behind the scenes, like we got we started with the DEP herd trial and how that's behind the scenes and mm-hmm. opening the curtain. And you get to see it on a daily basis or when you were uh, the district attorney, you got to see that on a daily basis. So that definitely uh, gives you a, a much different perspective than say you know some true crime podcaster like myself so it's great to have people like yourself on the show and uh, share the knowledge because really everybody wants to know about these cases and and i really think that you know with your book it brings up a lot of questions about the death penalty and you know where things stand and your whole, I mean, you have a whole presence in this, in this business, in this industry. So, um, I am just very grateful. Um, is there any last things that you would like to, uh, say about, um, where you can find your book or anything along those lines?
0: Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Uh, my book, it uh, was published by McFarland and company. Uh, so McFarland uh, and company, you can go onto their website or you can find it on, um, you know Barnes and Noble and and uh, Amazon and and all those uh, uh, booksellers as well online. So uh, yeah, please do. I'd be I'd love to hear from uh, readers and and I, and I also want to compliment you on on your podcast. It's it's great. Uh, you know I've had an opportunity to to listen in and 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 I saw firsthand at CrimeCon how people were kind of. Uh, flocking o- over you and or on you like a like a rock star. So so uh, whatever you're doing, it's working. So it's all good. Well,
1: I I appreciate that. Uh, wouldn't go that far, but you know, hey, all the all the kind words always make a good day. So <laughs> so, uh, Matt, thank you so much for being a guest on Who Killed? And are you on social or anything like that? Can anybody follow you? Yeah,
0: yeah. So you can follow me uh, on Twitter at uh, Matthew T Mangino. And, uh, you can also go to my blog, which is, uh, mattmangino.com. And, uh, you know, I'd love to hear from your listeners. It would be uh, tremendous.
1: Yeah. And I see that you, you update that regularly. So that uh, would be a great place for any listeners who have any questions, um, for Matt Mangino to uh, definitely reach out and check out his blog it's really uh, extensive and there's a lot of cool things on there so thanks so much again Matt and uh, you have a wonderful day thank you well guys I hope you enjoyed that conversation with former district attorney Matthew Mangino again we met at CrimeCon 2022 in Las Vegas and again there will be another CrimeCon in the UK this june as well as in september of 23 in orlando so definitely would love to see you guys there again who killed has a booth with killer podcasts and uh some of our other shows so it's really great and it's a great way to get out there and meet some of the listeners so if you guys uh, get a chance check it out but thank you so much to matthew and uh i should say matt mangino for joining me he is a very busy guy again check out all his stuff on mattmangino.com. he literally is on tv like once a week so i would say it's definitely worth checking out as you guys know i do drop new episodes every friday and again now that crime con's over the big move all that good stuff and uh back in the swing of things so Next week should be uh, another interesting episode. Uh, Still working on the Patrick Kearney stuff. And again, if you do want to help support the podcast, you can donate via Venmo at my username at bill-huffman-3 or via PayPal on the Slow Burn Media website, I should say. And uh, just click on the Donate button on the right-hand side. And again, that goes right to uh, the shows, so that would be great. And again, thanks so much to uh, the listeners for tuning in this week, and as always, uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can, it's at BillHuffman3, the shows that I have coming down the pipeline, as well as updates about previous cases, I kind of post periodically, And I'm not as active as I once was, but it is still a good way to communicate with the listeners. So check it out. And again, that's at BillHuffman3. And again, thank you so much for listening this week. And as always, be healthy and stay safe.
0: It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash.